Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. So if you'll read these verses with me, um, in whatever version you have silently to yourselves, I'm reading from the ESV, John chapter 15, verse 9 through 11. Jesus continues by saying, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Lord, I ask that as we consider these verses, these three verses from John, along with others that support this text, that you would illuminate us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might, that, that we might behold wondrous things from your word and teach us, lead us in your truth. And just as we sang, you are the God of our salvation and it's in you that we wait all the day long. So we wait here together to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage that we're, that we're looking at today, with this metaphor we've been talking about for the last few weeks, shows a progression of maturity. We've talked about this from fruit to more fruit to much fruit. If you look in John chapter 15 at verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And if you jump to verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. So we see in, in this metaphor a progression of maturity, of, of bearing fruit to bearing more fruit to bearing much fruit. And as Jesus finishes this metaphor of a, of a vine, a vine dresser, and branches, he teaches that a life of fruitfulness is characterized by obedience that stems from genuine love. That's what we learn in verse 9 and 10. Jesus, Jesus highlights the nature of, of, of this love he talks about by using these superior and penultimate examples. The way God, the Father, loves Jesus and the way Jesus, the Son, loves us. He uses the example of how God loves about how the Father loves the Son and how Christ loves us to show us how to live with a similar kind of love. I'll read these verses again, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, Jesus is speaking, as the Father has loved me, so, so have I loved you. And then the command, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. What we'll do today, just with the short time that we have left, is discuss some of the various ways that God the Father loves Jesus, and by extension, we'll discuss some of the ways that Jesus loves us, and after, we'll focus on the implications of how love and obedience are indicators of a maturing and fruitful life for Jesus Christ, and we'll finish by touching on the kind of joy that we read about in verse 11. So as we've read verse 9 
We see that it's God the Father loving the Son, and then Jesus the Son loving us. Well, how has the Father loved Jesus? We see different passages all over the Bible that talk about the nature, the character in which God loves. And so if we see here in in John chapter 15 that, that God loves the Son, it'd be necessary for us to look at a couple of passages and that indicate the way that God loves. The first one that I want to to focus on is that God loves with an everlasting love. It has no beginning, and it doesn't, nor will it ever have an end. In Jeremiah 31, verse 2 and 3, we read, Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And when Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him, from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Obviously, we know that this is, this, these are the words of God for the people of Israel. But this certainly would apply to the way that God the Father would love the one begotten Son. And that word begotten that we see in, in, uh, in John chapter 3, the, the, one, the one and only Son of Jesus Christ, we, we have an example that Jesus gives us, the way that he lived his life. In Philippians 2, we read about how, how Jesus, though he had the very form and he was made in the nature, he, he is God, he didn't take that as something to be used in advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But when he took on the nature of mankind, when he took on flesh and and sinews and and cells and skin and and bones, when he did did that, he limited himself in his divine state for a season and he taught us in the way that he lived his life on what it meant to depend on the Father. And we see this example that Jesus gives for us throughout all of the Gospels In Mark 1, verse 35, it says that he arose early in the morning to a desolate place to pray. Jesus had a quiet time. And he would, in a sense, get his marching orders every single morning. And obviously, he was in contact and community with the Father all day long. But he was constantly getting information from his Heavenly Father on how to live his life, how to go about business, so to say, on a normal day-to-day basis. But we read in John chapter 3, verse 35, John the Baptist says these words right after um, he acknowledges, like, no, no, it's good that Jesus is doing these things, like doing ministry and baptizing people, because his followers come to him, they're like, do you, do you hear what this Jesus guy is doing? And he's like, hey, I, need, I must decrease so that he may increase. But a few verses later in verse 35, we read about this relationship The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his end. The second thing is that God has eternally bestowed all things to Jesus. And we see that most vividly in his ministry on earth. As we were talking about, he would get his marching orders every single morning. As he would would go about and do ministry, the Father and the Son, though eternally one in essence along with the Holy Spirit, there is a distinction that we see in role. He would say, I don't do anything except what my heavenly Father tells me in heaven to do. And it was for the purposes of fulfilling the will of God. And when we talked about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's purpose was to draw the heart of man to seek after Jesus Christ. 
We'll talk about that in John chapter 16. But this was most clearly made evident to mankind when Christ the Son walked in earth, completing his ministry. In John chapter 5, verse 20, we read, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And additionally, he says, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. We see here that, that Jesus, as he walked on earth, not only was he spending time with God in order um, to, to receive his marching orders so that he could be bestowed with information and, and direction and guidance as he was going about his ministry, there was a deeper, more profound purpose to why Jesus would do that on a regular basis. And it teaches us a little bit about the relationship that God had with his son. For, the, for those of us in who, who are parents, uh, we know how deeply we love to be with our children. And I haven't really experienced this in full yet. I have a two-year-old, and so I think to an extent, you know, there's times when he just runs at me with his arms open and he puts his hand around my neck. I'm like, oh, this is the best feeling in the world. But I can't even imagine, I can only imagine, and my parents have expressed this to me, just the feeling how awesome it is that when your kids get older and they just, they come over and they don't have anything to ask. They don't have any any request to make of you. They're not coming over for any selfish reasons. They're just coming over there to be like, hey, mom, hey, dad. Just wanted to come and say hi and hang out with you for a little bit. Well, obviously, Jesus lived his life understanding Psalm 73, verse 28. As for me, it's, it's good to be near to the Lord. And so the, the way that God, the Father, loved his Son and the way that Jesus loved his Father is that they knew they needed to be close and intimate in relationship. Jesus was close with the Father and was able to see exactly what the Father was doing while he walked as a man, though limited in his human nature. The last thing, the last way that we notice God's love, and again in an example from Romans chapter 8 and how God shows his love to us, teaches a profound truth. The way that God loved his son was unfailing and it was unchanging. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love that God had for his son was unfailing. It was unchanging. And we see by extension that Jesus loves us with the same kind of love. In verse 9 he says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. All of these characteristics about the way that God loves his son, we could pretty much grab and apply to the way that Jesus loves us. And let me make a clear distinction here. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, but the way that God loves his children, those who have been born again, those who have actually believed in Jesus Christ, and are walking in community and fellowship with him because they have, in fact, been indwelled by the person of the Holy Spirit. There is great benefits that come with the way that Jesus Christ loves us. And those benefits that come with the way Jesus Christ loves us will, will bear fruit. Next week, we'll hear from Pastor Mike uh, about those of us who aren't, aren't at the men's retreat, but we'll probably have time to talk about it later on. But we'll hear about this idea of salvation and sanctification and, and what that really means and looks like in the context of our faith. In Romans 5.8, we see this father to son to us uh, love interaction. Romans 5 verse 8, most of you have this verse memorized. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we see that God's love is extended through us and only, sorry, God's love is extended to us through and only through the person of Jesus Christ, namely by his redemptive work on the cross and his resurrection. And without that resurrection, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about, we would be utterly and completely hopeless. And all this activity that we participate in together, so many of you that are sitting in these chairs and pews and you're literally only here out of obligation or whatever, if none of these things that we so passionately talk about and sing about are true, then we really are here for no reason and we're above all else to be pitied. That's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as it stands, he has resurrected. And so we gather so that we might be conformed more into his image so that we could walk lives that are worthy of the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what John chapter 15 verses 9 through 11 is getting at. In these two verses, there is an obvious question that arises out of verse 9. If you read it again with me, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I think the obvious question that comes out of verse 9 is, what does it mean to abide in Jesus' love? What does that mean? The cool thing is, is that verse 10 gives us the answer to that question. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, this this exchange continues. Not only does the love that God has for his Son extend to the way that Jesus loves us, but the way that Jesus abided in his Father's love was namely by being obedient to his commandments. And similarly, the way that we can say with definitiveness that we are abiding in the love of Jesus is if we obey. Everyone say, obey. Only like half of you said it. Next time I do that, everyone say it. And so we'd be remiss not to talk about obedience. I know a lot of you are like, oh man, here we go. He's about to sort them out. Some of you in here are like, yeah, yeah, get them all. Tell those disobedient fools and put them in their spot and tell them how, yeah, give, give it to them. Some of you are like, yeah, I, already, I already feel bad about not being obedient, Drew, and you're just making me feel worse. I, need to, I know I got to try harder and I got to be better and I got to do more. I know, I get that. And some of you might be like, well, Drew, why are you, why are you always getting all hung up on all this obedience stuff and good work stuff? Don't leave out the grace. Grace that we're saved. It's by grace that we're saved. You're, you're always talking about all these things that we have to do if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. We've been saved so that we can just live however. God's going to forgive us. Calm down. Why do you care so much? Well, let me just say, at different times, I'm in all three of those boats. Sometimes when I, when I think about the implications of obedience and living according to the word of God, I feel pretty self-righteous about myself and I look at others and go like, Oh, how dare you? Other times when, which is more often if I'm telling the truth when I've failed or when I've sinned or when I've fallen short, I just feel like I have to do more or work harder or be better and kind of pay back God so that I can get to a place where I'm like, okay, I think I've done enough to be worthy enough to stand before you in your presence. 
And other times, I'm just kind of sick of, it, of all of it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to kind of bank on grace today because I don't really feel like doing any of these things. But as it stands, we see in this verse that if we, could, we keep his commandments, then we will abide in his love. This is our, our choice. You choose whether you are going to listen and obey. Today, the title of my sermon is not called Listen and Obey. It's called Love, Listen, and Obey. Because without love, as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, without love, all of these things that we do, it's just fruitless endeavors. It's meaningless pursuits. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And here's the crazy thing, is that you could do things not really in love. And it can, it can have some sort of internal impact on the person who's benefiting from it, but it doesn't mean anything for you in your eternity. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We've talked about this concept before. Um, Philippians chapter one, Paul says that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, and this is Paul speaking, the latter do so in love knowing that I was put here for the, for the defense of the gospel. But others preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. It's out of selfish ambition. But then Paul says, but what does it matter? The important thing is, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Now I want to I think it's very important that we make this point about Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is not teaching us, like, who cares why you do good things? Who cares? Just do good things, and it might, you know, just throw stuff, and some stuff might stick for people who are benefiting from it. Now, the point is that even if you're doing things that are good, and they're making an impact for the kingdom, but you're not doing them with a heart that really wants to serve the Lord, it doesn't do anything for you. It does nothing for you. I, I think of a, of a testimony that I heard recently about um, a man who gave his life to Jesus somewhere in, I think, I think it was somewhere in, in uh, North, North Africa, where it was hard to get access to the gospel. And um, some humanitarian, some atheist humanitarian gave a certain amount of millions of dollars in order to, to help a particular village get a, a water well and more access to food. And it ended up sustaining the lives of Countless thousands of people in this village. And then a few years later, a missionary was able to come through this village where these people were kept alive because of the humanitarian work of this atheist person. And this guy hears the gospel and he gets saved. Now we know that God uses everything. And he works everything out for good. And here's one of the benefits of those. God works everything out for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. So God used the donation of this atheist person that helped get water and food to this village in North Africa so that later on the gospel could get there and then people who might have been dead had it not been for the humanitarian work of this individual were not dead. They were alive and they heard the gospel and were saved and their eternal destination, their, their eternity was impacted because of it. But when, but when that atheist humanitarian stands before God on judgment day and has to give an account for everything and he does not have the blood of Christ protecting him, giving him a covering, 
purchasing his right standing before God, that million dollar package that he gave to this village will amount to nothing for him. Let us not be guilty of this kind of fruitless and loveless activity. The only way that we can be involved, and I'll say this again, in anything that means something in eternity is if we make it our mindset that we believe that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who puts us in right standing before God. That's grace. And by grace, we've been brought into fellowship with God. And so the overflow of our heart is to respond as we're able to graciously even abide in his presence. We understand in our heart of hearts because we don't deserve to be there. The natural response is, Lord, whatever you would have me do, I am yours. My hands, my feet, my mind, my mouth, my body, use it for your glory. That's what it means to abide in the love of Jesus Christ. Obeying God certainly matters. We've talked about it. But why you obey God is way more important. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We get this great verse. It says, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So that's why we say love, listen, obey. Everyone say that. Love, listen, and obey. Hey, Amen. Thank you so much. And, and that passage in 1, chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul um, was given the task of going to Amalek and totally destroying these people who were godless and who were persecuting Jews. And when Saul gets there with his armies, he, he wins a great battle. And, and God, God told Samuel to tell Saul to, to kill everything. Don't leave any cattle. Don't leave any livestock. Don't take anything for yourself. Burn it. Destroy it. We want nothing to do with this pagan society that's, that's caused so much havoc on the people of Israel. But when Saul gets there, he sees, and they have their great victory, he sees all of these really awesome and, and great cows and cattle and all these animals. And he goes, man, this, I would be a fool to pass up bringing these back. These will be a great addition to the farms of Israel. I don't know, whatever, the farms of Israel. That's what we'll go with. And then Samuel goes to confront Saul after the battle. And from a long way off, you see in the narrative that Samuel's like, oh man, Saul's coming. And he kind of like runs ahead. And he's like, hey Samuel, how are you doing? It's good to see you, buddy. And we did it. We honored the Lord and we had a great victory. And Saul's like, well then what, or Samuel says, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And Saul's like, oh, those? We're, we're going to build an altar and we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord our God. And he left out the part where he actually built an altar and a statue to himself for the great victory. And that's when Samuel says these words. And this is in the Old Covenant. You think, oh, well, God was... The way that God operated with his people was different in the old covenant than it is. And it's, it's not different at all. Jesus is just the, the propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God. And when we believe in him, all of our sin, it's taken care of. Jesus poured out his blood on the mercy seat. And he entered on, he, he, he poured out as the lamb his blood on the mercy seat. And as the, our high priest, he entered into the holy of holies. And he purchased a place for us to be renewed to the Father. But it's always been like this. 
that the blood of goats and rams was never good enough. And for us simply just to claim Jesus as a tagline without actually having a transformed heart that loves him and that wants to obey him, and I would argue that that's really not the condition of somebody who is saved. If you are saved, if you really have been saved by grace, the response is, Lord, whatever, I'm here to obey. I'm listening, I'm here to obey. I'm abiding in your love, and I'm gonna do what you tell me to do. Will we fail? Yes, we will fail. But then we repent, and we stand up, and we say, God, I'm sorry, what is it you'll have me do today? And then we'll fail again, and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent, what is it that you'll have me do today? And then more and more and more, we'll move from a little bit of fruit to more fruit to much fruit. We'll move to, to living a life that's characterized by joy, to a life that's characterized by more joy, to a life that's characterized by full and complete joy, lacking in nothing. That's the progression of someone who's walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It will ebb, it will flow, it'll trend up and down, but it will go up. It will go up towards a life that follows after God. With the rest of our time, I want to talk about these three different types of obedience. I, I, I talked about a couple of them already. The first type is prideful obedience. Because remember, the obedience is important, but the way that we obey is far more obedient. So the first kind is prideful obedience. Those who value themselves and the nature of their own obedience over others. If you're in this room and you're like, yeah, yeah, sort them all out. Tell them, Drew. Tell them, tell them, tell them. They need to hear it. Oh, I'm good, but they need to hear it. Well, you're like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on everything that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So don't have that kind of obedience. <laughs> the second kind is begrudging obedience. It's, an, you know, it's, a, it's a, a yielding to God's, and sometimes it's, it's hard to not feel this way. So I want to say, like, it's, it's hard just to manufacture uh, the third type that we'll talk about. But, but, but there's, there's, there's people who, who are Christians who come to church, who sit in here, and their life in Christ is characterized by this type of obedience, begrudging obedience. It's a type of, uh, it's really not obedience at all. It's the type of obedience, quote unquote, that we see Jonah exhibiting the minor prophet Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were really bad and awful people. So he went the opposite direction and then God caused a huge fish to swallow him up after he was thrown off of a boat where it was found out that he was the reason for the storm and then he prayed and then God spit him out. And then all of, all of my son's children's books, that's what, that's what we focus on in the story, which is great. You know, like, there is redemption. Um, Jonah prays, God forgives him and he coughs him up, it's 
Three days later, it's a, it's a picture and foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a great story. But all of the children's books that we read um, to, to Mateo are all, they just focus on that. You're like, yeah, amen. But, but so, so he does go to Nineveh, and it's almost like with a half heart. He's like, hey, if you don't repent, you're all going to die. And he just like leaves. And then the whole nation gets saved. It's literally, the, it, it's, it's a document of the worst missionary of all time with like the great, the single-handedly greatest revival in a short period of time that we've ever seen. So obviously it's God who accomplishes his perfect purposes according to his will. And then even after that, Jonah goes back home and there's a, there's a vine, it provides shade and it goes away and he's just complaining. Like, how is it that you could save the, the, the people of Nineveh? They're horrible. And we see this kind of begrudging and complaining obedience and it's an obedience it's not really obedience at all it's just a an arbitrary kind of I'll do whatever I guess just because it stinks if I don't do it but it stinks when I do do it so it all stinks such a lame attitude to have so the third kind of obedience that I'm admonishing all of us to have I'm talking to myself too I said this last week on on Saturday I, I think I could probably be blamed of being guilty of this, so I'm saying this for the record, but I preach things a lot very passionately, and I get passionate because I'm convicted myself. And so I, everything that I'm preaching to all of you as you sit out there, please don't hear me saying, I'm doing all of these things, so that's why I get to be up here and tell you how to do it. I made this point last week. I'm a, the word preach in the New Testament, Caruso, it, it literally just means to herald. And so a herald in, in the first century that of, the, of the emperor, they would be given a message that would be sealed and stamped or whatever, and then they would be given an assignment to go and deliver that message somewhere. And, and, and then there would be people that would follow the herald who would listen to see the nature and manner that the herald delivered the message. And after the herald would, would give the message that he was given by the king, just a simple proclamation of whatever it was that the king gave to him to say, or the emperor, he would be responsible for going back to the emperor and giving a report for what he just heralded. And then the emperor would turn to the, to the witnesses that went with the herald and say, is this, is this the manner and nature in which this herald heralded? If one of your names is Harold out there, I'm sorry, but... And depending on the witness's response determined whether they would oftentimes live or die. And so all I am standing up here before you is just, a, is just a herald that's been given a message to give to you from my master. But we're all obligated to follow these things because he has eternally declared them to us in his word. So we must listen and obey, but we must first realize that the only reason that we could ever obey with any sort of meaning is if it's characterized by love. The third type of obedience is genuine love-filled obedience. Genuine love-filled obedience. It's the kind that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Everyone say, from the heart. From the heart. 
you have become obedient from the heart, not from the mind. I mean, when we talk about the heart, we talk about the mind, the will, and the emotions, but we're not just talking about a type of obedience just out of duty or the type of obedience that we can just lord it over other people. It's this kind of obedience that stems out of a genuine love for none other than Jesus Christ, realizing that the kind of love that God showed Jesus is the kind of love that Jesus is eternally showing us. We become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. It's every word that's in God's word with the expectation that we are to obey every imperative that's written, that our lives are, are to be characterized by every description that's given in Scripture. And until then, we always have room for improvement. But that improvement will only come as we continue to abide in the love of Jesus Christ. Second John Chapter 1, verse 6 says, And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So we pick up our Bibles and we read from Genesis to Revelation, and we say, yes, God. And then when something challenging comes up and we think and we feel and we... We don't want to do that. We're like, I don't know if I want to do that, God. And then the Holy Spirit convicts us and impresses on us. We say, oh, yes, God. Yes, Father. Yes, Master. Thank you. Thank you that I get to do this. Remind me. Remind me that I've been saved by grace so that I can do things like this. Father, forgive me when my heart strays towards other things. Renew my mind, Lord, that I might focus on your word. Refresh my heart so that when I think about all the things that have infiltrated my thoughts and my mind, refresh my, refresh my mind to focus on you. And help me, Lord, to love you with an obedience that comes from the heart. Lastly, this word uh, that, that, that Jesus uses in uh, John chapter 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That word full um, brings us to James chapter one, talking about how we are to count all of our trials as joy, the same joy, and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the same idea, these words of perfection, and completion, fullness. It is, it's, it's this idea of moving from infancy in faith to adolescence in faith to, I guess, like, I don't know, an adult in faith. When I was a, th when I was a child, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became adult, when I became an adult, I put childish things behind me. It's hilarious right now to watch my two-year-old son. Normally when he knows he's doing something that he's not supposed to be doing, well, one thing he does is he'll give us this cheesy little smile. He's like... But when we start to go Mateo, and he knows that there might be some impending discipline coming his way, he adjusts, usually. Not always, but usually he adjusts. Let us not 
be stuck in this mindset that the only reason why we love God and do, or why we do what God tells us to do is just to avoid something. That's a horrible way of living. Don't be like a two-year-old in your faith forever and ever and ever. We must realize that the reason, the reason why we get to obey Jesus is sure the fruit that's yielded, the people that come to know him. But in this passage, it's a promise. It's a state of being that we're promised that can be characteristic of our lives. As we obey him and abide in his, and abide in his love, we're able to operate in the joy of the Lord. I'm going to read this passage and pray for us. Romans 5, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. Everyone say rejoice. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, we thank you that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That though life is complicated and it's hard, many things assail us, anxious, anxious thoughts, trials, difficult circumstances, we know that we can find solace in your word and in your presence. And Lord, from that place of abiding in you and letting your words abide in us, I pray that we, would be that we would be a people who would be characterized as those who abide in your love, namely that we would be people who would be obedient to you and that it would be an obedience that could be described as genuine, a type of obedience that comes straight from our heart, Lord, a heart that you have given us replaced with a heart of flesh for our old, cold, and dead heart of stone. Teach us to obey. Help us to enjoy you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.